Well, thank you again, Mary. Thank you much. Appreciate it. That was a nice, soft, contemplative, introspective, and focusing type of a song. It helps you focus on the matter at hand. Second Peter chapter 1. We're still working our way through this epistle. And I've been thinking way ahead. Of course, it's going to be a while here before we get through Second Peter, but I've even been thinking way ahead about the book of Judges. Contemplating this. Yes, and it follows John. I thought about that, and that wasn't exactly the reason I chose that or was been thinking about that, but I uh, just wanted you to know that. I've been thinking ahead on that. I don't know where we'll go. Sometimes I wish we had three services, you know, a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, because I got too many things. I, I want to stop here and go on to this. And I said, no, you got to keep going, finish what you start. And then, oh boy. But here we go. Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin, of course, with verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent, Peter says, to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. <coughs> and this voice which came from heaven we heard when he, we were with him in the holy mount. And we're going to stop there for the time being, because I don't plan to go any farther than that today if I make it that far. And the other section here on... Uh, the word of prophecy is a detailed section that we'll probably take an entire message on in dealing with that. So I'm going to let it go for now. But Peter is continuing on after having urged these readers to be diligent. Diligent about putting forth effort to grow and to mature so that they might achieve the end result of this, what one translation says, a super abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom or this age-abiding messianic kingdom, the one promised by God actually before the world began, before the foundation of the world. But yet through the fathers, in particular people like Abraham and Isaac. And there were others that God made this promise to. And so he's just simply extending and adding to that, as he will show here, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. And we have the absolute sureness given to us that what he has promised 
he's going to bring it to pass. And so in view of this, um, this exhortation about growth, about maturity, about a dynamic faith that is growing and maturing, not just the same faith, you know, five, ten years later, or the same one that you had 20 years ago, but one that has grown and matured, one that is an active faith. You're living it out. And so when he says then, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. <coughs> He's, Peter's just simply pointing out to us that as I am been admonished about not apologizing for repeating things so much, but and I understand that, I got to do it because it's important. We all have to be reminded of these things. And it's important that we be reminded constantly. And why? Well, I'm convinced that there is a biblical principle related to, well, probably several factors, but at least one, light and darkness, is that if we do not maintain ourselves in the light, and if we are not consistently walking in the light, then it's just like these things begin to fade away and darkness comes in. Not maybe necessarily like flipping a light switch where it's just an instantaneous thing, but it's a gradual moving away. And so it's important for us to hear these truths over and over and over again. You know, it really concerns me when I hear about people leaving a teaching ministry that teaches biblical kingdom truths. And then wants to leave that for who knows whatever reasons. Closer to home, well, that could be a valid reason. Better program for our kids or, you know, whatever the reason might be. It's a, it's a concern. I'm a per- but, and it may just be me, but I'm just telling you, I'm a person driven by truth. When I know where the truth is, it's like I'm like a magnet. I just go that direction. That's where I want to be. And I like being with people that are driven that way myself. And so when I see people leaving and easily walking away from such a thing, it just really bothers me greatly. Because you know what's going to happen. When you're under a ministry where you're not being taught those things on a regular basis, then there's just going to be a very natural drift. You can't escape it. It's simply going to happen. Unless you are a person given to staying in the word yourself and digging those things out on your own. So Peter's admonition here and Peter's urging about this matter of putting these things in remembrance He wasn't bashful about it, and he didn't hesitate for even a moment to mention it. So he's he's wanting us to know that these things are to be held in the highest esteem, the highest value. And he even tells us there, he says, Though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. They had heard this message. They knew and had the like faith, the like precious faith that Peter 
and the apostles had. And he said, you are established in those things, or you are strengthened, you're grounded in these things. So it wasn't like they were ignorant. It wasn't like they needed to know. Peter's telling them things they already knew. But he's reestablishing these vital, necessary truths that was going to be absolutely necessary if they ever had the hope and expectation of receiving that abundant entrance into the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of glory. And so he's, he's really, I mean, he's really, if you could say it this way, he's, you know, he's, he's pounding it down. He's setting a groundwork here and reminding them of these things. And you know, if if look back at uh, Luke chapter 22 for a second. And Luke chapter 22 and verse 32. There's an interesting verse there. Where if you look at verse 31, you'll see that the Lord is speaking to Peter. He says, Lord, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted or when you are turned back, strengthen or establish thy brethren. Same word. So Jesus had already admonished Peter concerning doing this very thing. Establish, strengthen your brethren. And of course, we're well familiar with the case over in John 21. When Peter, or when the Lord said to Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? And Emory said, Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter knew what the Lord expected of him and what he wanted him to do as an apostle. And so he's reminding them that you know these things and you are established in the present truth. To be established in the present truth or grounded in it implies something very strong and clear to us. That there was a specific and clear body of doctrine and truth that was taught in the early church. And specifically by the apostles. And so Peter's not referring to some, you know, thing out there. He was referring to something very specific. Something that they were well acquainted with. And something that all the apostles taught. It was a unified, coherent message. Which they went about preaching everywhere they went. Nobody taught something different. And so when he tells them that you are well grounded in that, then that tells us something about us, that we need to be well grounded in that as well. Now, it doesn't mean you need to know every aspect, every nuance, every tense of every verb and so on of every word in the New Testament. That's not what he's talking about. But when you are established in the groundwork of the word of the kingdom and you understand what the hope is, the blessed hope, the promise of life to come, the gospel of the kingdom, eternal life, judgment, baptism. When you understand those foundational principles, 
just like the writer of Hebrews said, will go on if God permit. But there was a certain body, oh, I ought to throw in there, resurrection also. There was a certain body of truth that was understood, that they all knew. And they all knew it because the apostles taught it. But we're about to come upon, as we mentioned last week, don't think of those things apart from what's to come in chapter 2. The warning about the false teachers, the false doctrine, the fables, as he tells us later, cunningly devised fables, feigned words that they bring in. And they don't go off. You know, the interesting thing is, is like cults today. They don't go off to their own little group and teach those things. But he says they always want to gravitate towards the church. They always want to gravitate where the truth is being taught. And then they want to infiltrate and subvert and deceive and lead astray with their false doctrine, their cunningly devised fables, their feigned words, as he calls them, over in chapter 2. Peter states it neg- negatively over here in verse uh, 16. Regarding these things, he says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Think, you know, when, when you talk about cunningly devised, you're talking about something that has been conjured up in the mind of men. It is not objective truth that Peter and the other apostles were preaching. Why was it objective? Because they got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't make those things up. They understood what was written in the Old Testament scriptures, especially after the Lord had opened their eyes to a few things, and they began to understand. So these were not just, you know, happenstance things. This is not just something Peter's just saying, hey, when you get saved, you know, you need to grow. You know, it's not good just to sit around and be happy that you're, you know, you know me or you know the Lord. But you need to move on. No, it was more than that. It was something rooted and grounded in the promises of God from before the foundation of the world. And so we ought to be at least discerning enough to pick up on those things when we hear them being taught. And to be wise unto those things. To know when we're being, uh, I would just use a common word, bamboozled. <laughs> Led astray. The Bible words led astray. Pulling the wool over your eyes. Faking you out. Trying to get you to understand that, oh, we've got this great thing going on over here. And you know what? About, well, I guess I probably should just say 100% of the time, those things usually lead off over to an experience-based things rather than something based on knowledge and facts. And that becomes important to people like you and I. That's why we study the Bible the way we do. That's why we try to present the truth of God's Word the way we do. Because it gives you some, it's, it's like the foundation of a house or a building. It gives you something to anchor yourself to, rather than something that's experiential. You know, I could compare the house or the building... With a balloon, you know. A balloon wouldn't be too good of a thing to try to anchor your house to. 
because it's going to be carried about by the wind. And we all know what the scripture says about being carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. So there is a coherent, specific body of truth and doctrine that Peter's referring to. And it's just very essential. And these people, he says, were established in that truth. Some translate this, established in, in, in the uh, truth that is with you. But most of them, most of the translations translate it as present truth, meaning the present truth that you have right now that was with them, the one they had. So these people he's talking about here were not the false teachers, nor had they even been infiltrated at this point in time, apparently by these false teachers. But Peter's warning them that it's going to come. And we're going to see here in just the next few verses... Part of Peter's warning has to do with the fact that he's soon to depart this life. And he wants to have them grounded and ready for when the time comes. And, of course, that time has long come and passed, and we are smack dab in it today. And those kinds of doctrines are are everywhere about us. Verse 13, he says, I think it meet or right, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Now, he's just simply talking about it's right for me as an apostle to be doing this. And, of course, we already looked at that word established and how the Lord had already spoken to Peter about this responsibility that he was to have as an apostle. And so Peter is just acknowledging that it's right for him to be doing this. And it's interesting, this interesting phrase then, as long as I am in this tabernacle. Speaking, of course, euphemistically of the body. The word there is tabernacle. Comes from the same root word where we get the word for tent. And so we're familiar with that uh, type of of a tent. Picturing the body. Now... It's interesting what it what it implies there, and we'll see this in the next verse. But he says, as long as I am in this, this is right. This is my duty at this point in time then to stir you up by way of remembrance, to arouse you, to fully awaken you to these things. Now, in verses 13, 14, and 15, it, let's just note three things there so you kind of get the outline. Verse 13 talks about, Peter's talking about before his death. He's talking about his ministry as an apostle. In verse 14, he says, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. Now he's talking about the time presently. The time, he's speaking about the time of his death. It's coming. And then in verse 15, he says, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease. Then he talks about after his death. So in three short verses there, before he dies, his ministry, the time approaching of his death, and then what's going to happen after his death. And central to all of that is his preaching and teaching and reminding, stirring them up regarding this body of truth, this doctrine 
these things in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 that are so essential to arriving at the goal at the end of our life. So he tells them then, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. Well, how do you put off a tabernacle? If, if the tabernacle is representative of the body, how do you put it off? We well, you know this word also is translated put away. And quite frankly, in, in a very, very literal sense, that's what it means. Contextually, it's talking, sometimes it's used about literally taking off a, a garment, a shirt, or a robe, or toga, or whatever. So it's used in that sense, to put something off. But it's also used in the sense of putting something away. Removal, in other words. Taking up a tent, when you, when you strike the cord, you pull up the pegs, you know, and you fold the tent up. There's a departure in mind. And so he's, he's relating all this in this uh, symbolic idea here. That the time is short. It is coming swiftly. But not only is he talking about it coming swiftly, but he's talking about the kind of death that he would die, that it would be a swift death, a crucifixion. And, of course, we already know what the Lord told him about that. Matter of fact, look back at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. In verse 21 it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, when he says not the putting away of the, flesh, of, of the filth of the flesh, it's the same word here, the putting away, the putting off. And so just like the, when he, of course he's speaking of it negatively, just like when you take dirt off of flesh, you wash it off, you remove it. Well, that's the same symbolism he's giving us here regarding the body as a tabernacle. And he says, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me or made clear to me. If I could read this. John 13, 36. I finally got it. John 13, 36. There's a couple of references here as well to what the Lord told Peter regarding his impending death and how he would die. He had an intimation of that here in verse 36 when Simon Peter said unto him, Lord... Whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, ye can, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now, I don't think that Peter need to have Jesus remind him that, hey, one day you're going to die. But rather, he's reminding him about the kind of death that he's going to die is like the death that I'm going to die. In other words, Jesus said, The kind of death I die is the kind of death you're going to die. 
And then, of course, over in, in, in uh, chapter 21 of John. John 21 and verses um, 18 and 19, it says there. Yeah, 18 and 19, I'm thinking, yep. Verily, verily, he says, John 21, 18 and 19, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. So he signified to Peter the kind of death that he was going to die. And so when he says here, knowing that shortly, it's coming, it's, it's not that it's coming in a t- matter of time, although that probably is there as well, because the implication from Jesus was in your old age when you die. Well, this has been many years later. Peter is a much older man now. So it, it could be referring to that. But the greater implication appears to me to be he's referring to the kind of death that it's going to be a swift death. In other words, you could say it knowing that swiftly I must put off my tabernacle. It's going to happen quick, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. So if you read it that way, you can see that the Lord had showed him this is how it's going to be. He'd made it clear to him. Verse 15 now, after his death, moreover, in view of when that happens... (coughs) I will endeavor, I will be diligent that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I think it's interesting there. The word, moreover, I will endeavor is literally, but I will be diligent. You remember back in verse 5, Peter exhorted these readers of his to be diligent about adding these things to their faith. But now Peter says, I will be diligent to remind you about these things. And so it becomes and behooves me as my responsibility to be constantly reminding us of these things. Reminding us because it's good for me. Reminding us because it's good for you. Reminding us because that's what the Lord Jesus taught and it's what Peter said he was going to do. And he did it. I will endeavor... That ye may be able, after my decease, my departure, my exodus, my going out, to have these things always in remembrance. Now, there's a couple of things there. (coughs) That ye may be able, after my departure. It's an interesting concept when you think about this, that, you know, when you talk about the person in the grave being asleep but yet here Peter says I'm departing from that body and so it appears to me that the body is the thing that goes to sleep it's in the grave but the person departs from the body and of course we see and we don't need to go back and look and rework all those uh, those passages that talk about 
the Lord Jesus Christ himself about the departure of his spirit and the departing of his soul and his body going to the grave, because you know those illustrations well. But that's the case here with Peter. The soul is leaving the body. It's departing. And Peter doesn't talk about this thing as if it's some great fearful experience, but rather something that's needful. And and when you think of it this way, death is not something to be afraid of. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't like the idea. The thought doesn't exactly exhilarate me. But on the other hand, when we think about death, it's like a door. You open a door to go into a new room. Death is the door to the new life, to the new experience of life, to the fulfillment of the promises of the life to come. And there's no other way to get there except through death. And so dying doesn't carry that fearful thing, if you really think of it that way, that it's a prospect to be looked forward to because it allows us then entrance into, it's the way through to the next life. And of course, the promise of resurrection that goes along with that is a vitally important one. And all the promises of obedience to the faith regarding the resurrection and judgment to come all tie in with this whole matter of life to come. And so Peter's, Peter wasn't afraid of that whole idea. He just, he just talked about it as, my body's going to be gone, but I'm departing it. My body's going to the grave, but I'm leaving. There's going to be an exodus on my part. And then this last phrase, when he says, to have these things always in remembrance. The obvious question is, is how's he going to do it? And what things is he talking about? The things that he's already recorded over here in the first chapter? Well, probably that's the most likely thing. The present letter that he's now writing. Ensuring that it would remain with them. Some think, and I can't remember the exact reason, but it has something to do with um, one of the verb tenses there. You know, it can be taken one way or another way. uh, That it might be referring to some other letter. Possibly Mark's gospel. Because many, and I would say probably most, feel that Mark was heavily influenced by the Apostle Peter in the writing of his gospel. I think the more likely thing is he's talking about the present letter we're reading right here, the one we're studying. To be put into remembrance of these things, to make it a permanent thing. Now, notice then the little word for, and notice the word we in verse 16. You'll notice, and then come back over to verse 11. Let's go back to what we've studied a couple weeks ago, last two weeks. After having exhorted these readers of this letter, and by the way, Peter, it doesn't really tell us, and you don't have to get the idea that Peter personally taught this doctrine to these people. It it, it could have come from someone else. 
And that's bound up in that little word, we. Because I want you to look in verse 12. Notice he says, wherefore, I. Verse 13, yea, I. Verse 15, moreover, I. Verse 16, for we. You notice the change there. (coughs) Peter goes from talking about himself to we. And, of course, we've answered that question before. We who? We apostles. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. In verse 11, when he says, for, he's following up on this exhortation to add these various things, character qualities, to our faith. And he gives the reason for it. So that we might obtain or receive that super abundant entrance into the messianic kingdom. Now over here in verse 16, as he writes concerning Peter's personal involvement with them and the remembrance of these things and his admonitions to them about these things, he says, for again. In other words, this... Just as verse 11 provided the ground and the basis for the things that went before that, verse 16 and 17 and 18 provide the basis for all that goes before this. And this gives us the ground for the entire thing. For we, we apostles, in particular here, Peter, James, and John, as we, if we were to go back to look at the account and how it actually came about, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice he says, when we made known unto you. So it may not have been, he didn't say when I made known unto you. It may have been somebody else that actually presented this truth to them. Could have been another apostle. Or it could have been someone else that taught them this grounded body of truth and doctrine. And he says there that we, we, and not following cunningly devised fables, we made unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The source of our information, as we said earlier, did not come from within, from the will of man. It didn't come from men who in their own wisdom devised some fable or story and enticed you or or sought to have you follow them. But rather, he says, we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw it. We personally experienced this event. And so the whole theme there has to do with the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, as one person noted, that when it talks about the coming of the Lord, there's never a number attached to that word. Like first coming, second coming, whatever. But it always has reference to 
the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This coming messianic rule, this coming when he comes to establish his throne, when he comes to become the actual ruler over this world. And we have to tie all that together when you look ahead a little bit. Well, let's go on to verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory or the majestic glory. Now that becomes important also because where was the authority for this voice? Well, it didn't come from earth. It came from heaven. It came from God the Father. And it came from God the Father with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved Son. The very word Son implies to us the rightful heir. The one who is the legitimate heir to the throne that was promised. Turn, turn back to, um, let's see where we are, Matthew 21. <clears throat> In Matthew 21 and verse 33. A parable, he says, concerning a householder which planted a vineyard. And in verse 34, it says, When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, in verse 36, more than the first, and they did unto him likewise. But last of all, He sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him. And let us seize on his inheritance. Beware that you let no man beguile you of your reward, Paul said. Or that John said in Revelation that no man take thy crown. Because there are those who would love to seize upon the inheritance. And when they saw that he was the son, the rightful heir, was when they decided to kill him. Well, this whole idea of son has to do with heirship. The one who has the right of succession... To the inheritance. And so when he said that, when they when Peter and James and John were on that holy mount and they saw the transfiguration of Jesus and they heard that voice coming out of heaven, this is my beloved son, we don't need to doubt for one second exactly how they understood that. They knew what the Lord meant. They knew what he was saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, when Peter is recounting these things to these people who are reading this letter, whom they already have heard these things, 
He's simply establishing a ground for all that he has taught them and all that goes along with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and the receiving of that message that it's grounded in certainty. It's grounded in objective truth. It is grounded in fact and not as these cunningly devised fables. Not as these false prophets who are going to be secretly slipping in, it says, to the assembly. When God's people are assembled together, he said they'll secretly slip in among you. And then they'll begin with their doctrine, with their teaching, with their false false ideas. Or he calls them over there in, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1, damnable heresies, which only end in destruction. And so this warning that Peter's putting forth is a very, very valid one, and it's very real, and it's for you and I today, and we need to be paying heed to it. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, <coughs> Do we not desire and wish to hear the Lord say to us, Well done. In you I am well pleased. You know, when, I, when, you, when you think ahead of those things, and you think about the judgment seat of Christ, and you look at the prospect of God looking upon our life, and looking back and surveying over how we've lived and what we have done, is he going to be say, good job, well done? Or is he going to say something else? Now, I'll tell you, that's of great concern to me, of great concern. And when I mess up, when I say the wrong thing, or I do the wrong thing. That's of concern to me. Because I want to be able to hear, well done. You did a good job. That's what it really boils down to. Pat on the back. Good job. Alan, who I'd like to hear that. And I know you would too. Because the prospect of not hearing that is not nearly so pleasant. As a matter of fact, the Bible, and Jesus himself said, there's going to be some weeping and crying, gnashing of teeth over the prospect of what we lose. And so to live a life, to walk out that door right here of this building, to when the assembly of God's people disperses and we go our ways, to go out there in the world, not just to live it here, but to live it in the world. In such a manner that God could look back on us and say, you got it, you hit it. Or what, in gymnastics, they say, you stuck it. You know, when they finish their routine, you did the job, you got it done. A life of faith. I want to be there with those Hebrews eleven thirteen people that says, these all died in faith. And I like the way one writer said it. It says, all that means is, is they lived in faith right up to the very last day 
of their long lives. So whether, you know, and whether it is a long life or a short, now you talk about long lives for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know, some of them were pretty long, 175 years for Abraham. That was a long life, a long time to consistently live by faith. But he did it. And that's an encouragement for you and I. Well, we'll finish up. Verse 18, he says, In this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So he's just simply assuring the readers to whom he's writing concerning the message that they have believed and received. He said, we just didn't pull this out of thin air. This came right straight from heaven. It was the message from God. And the one that we apostles preach to you is the message that you have with you right now. And he's urging them, admonishing them to grow in it, to stay in it, and to don't let the false teachers that are coming sway you in any way. Well, hey, we don't have to worry about the false teachers slipping in here so much as, and they do, we do have to be concerned about that. But hey, we've got it all around us, radio, TV, videos, it's just everywhere. Internet. We can walk into a trap so easily. It scares me. And the only way you can avoid it is just stay here. Stay right in, in the book, in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your precious Word. We thank you that there were bold men like Peter who was willing to preach and teach the truth, who did not stray from it, that when he stumbled and fell, that he didn't give up and quit, but he was converted. He turned back. He came back to the Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged in that as well, to come back to the Lord and to be faithful in all that you've given us to do. Lord, we look forward with gracious prospect to that day when we would stand before you and may we be able to stand there with boldness and confidence in that day, knowing that we have lived by faith in Jesus name. We pray. Amen.